Hey everyone, Alistair here for our midweek teaching. Um, hope you guys are doing well in the midst of this sheltering in place. I know it can be exhausting at times. Um, Remy and I, we've got the two babies at home, so it's been highs and lows is a good way to put it. And, and so I just, I just pray for all you guys out there as we're just figuring out how to best um, live in the midst of these circumstances. I just praying for you that we can just be seeking God first in all of it. Um, and hopefully these midweek teachings and the Ask the Elder series we have going can just be um, stuff to help you throughout your week. Um, hopefully God's Word can be speaking to you in that um, and just be encouraging as well. So for this week, I wanted to look at the idea of mercy. Um, we've been singing this song recently in our church services called Our Sins They Are Many. His mercy is more. The title is His Mercy is More. Um, and the song, the lyrics in it are just so rich and so impactful because they're so personal and so true of who God is and who we are. Um, just the fact that our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. And so I, this has been on my mind a lot, and uh, I've been reading through my Bible, and I was reading through 1 Kings, and I came across this chapter in 1 Kings that really stood out to me because um, reading about King Ahab, uh, and I'll get into who he is in a bit, but um, there comes this moment in time where God um, does something astounding in the midst of the reign of this evil King Ahab. So I want to look at that in 1 Kings 21. Um, so go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to 1 Kings chapter 21, and we'll start digging in. I'll pray for us real quick, and then uh, we can get into it. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to open up your word, Lord. I pray, Lord, as we're looking through it, that you can just be speaking to our hearts, Lord, and that you can just be revealing things that you desire to change, to grow in us, Lord. Um, Father, I pray that as we look at this, we can just see how great your mercy is, how astounding the love you have for us is, God. Um, I just pray that it can be changing our hearts, that it can just be drawing us to you, and that we can just be rejoicing in who you are, and that we can be sharing that with everyone we come into contact with, Lord, that we can be a light in the darkness, especially in our current circumstances. May we just be filled with hope, joy, love, patience, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, selflessness, gentleness, and self-control, God. Um, I just pray that we can be overflowing with the joy that comes from the mercy you've shown us. And we just pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, so 1 Kings chapter 21 uh, just a bit of context as to what's going on um, for those who aren't familiar with this part of the Bible. We're back in the Old Testament. Um, God has called Abraham uh, to follow him to this land, and uh, he wants to make a nation through Abraham. And so fast forward through Exodus all the way up uh, to the time of kings, uh, they have been in, or in Egypt and they were, uh, you know, in slavery. God frees them from that, he takes them out of Egypt. And then this, this nation that has descended from Abraham is wandering through the desert for a long time. And now uh, God finally ushers them into this, this promised land that he has, that he promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis, this land flowing with milk and honey. And, and so God takes the nation of Israel into this land. They're conquering nations that were in the area because of how wicked and vile and terrible they were. They were doing just disgusting things. And so God uses Israel as a means of punishment and judgment on these peoples. And then um, they sort of 
establish their tribes. They have different areas in the region of Israel. And then we get to King David. We all know King David. Um, and he is ruling over this huge nation, very prominent, very successful. Uh, he's a man after God's own heart. And then we have his son Solomon, um, who is wise, very intelligent, but then he, after him, we actually end up seeing this split in the nation of Israel. It turns into the kingdoms of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Um, and so fast forward to now in Kings, we go through the lineage, you know, David, Solomon, da 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 da, da. we get to this King Ahab, and he is the king of the um, kingdom of Israel, not Judah, but Israel, and their capital was in Samaria, and he uh, was not a good king. He did not follow in the ways of, of David. Um, he was doing his own thing. He was against God. Um, and you may recognize his name, King Ahab, with some stories of Elijah. Um, but yeah, he was, he was no good. And he had a, a wife as well, Jezebel, who was just as bad, if not worse. She was doing terrible things, and we're going to see some of that today in this story. So, that's a little bit of context as to where we're at. The nation of Israel has now split, and, and we're a few generations past that split with King Ahab, and, and we're in the time of the prophet Elijah as well. So let's start reading 1 Kings chapter 21. Starting in verse 1, it says, uh, Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So it starts off saying sometime later. What had just happened at the end of chapter 20 was Ahab was fighting this nation um, and God wanted him to, to wipe out the nation, to take care of it. Um, and Ahab, act, uh, sorry, Ahab actually ends up making a treaty with this king from another nation. And uh, that is not what God wanted. And God ends up telling Ahab, it is now your life for his life. So Ahab messed up real bad, um, and God is putting the punishment that was supposed to be for the other king on him. And so now, sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab, his main dominion was in Samaria, the capital of this kingdom of Israel, but he also had a palace in Jezreel, and that's what is being brought up here. And apparently there was a vineyard pretty close to the palace in which uh, Ahab wanted for himself. He wanted to take this vineyard from Naboth, this guy who lived in Jezreel. Um, so let's go on in verse 2. It says, Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. So we see... Ahab's reasoning for wanting this vineyard is nothing astounding or important. He literally just wants it for a vegetable garden. He wants to take this man's vineyard and just turn it into his own personal vegetable garden. Um, and this wasn't anything big or meaningful. It was just a selfish desire he had. He wanted a veggie garden. Um, and so he's, he's asking Naboth for this, right? But if a king is asking some citizen of a town for something, it's more like a request. If a king's asking you for something... There's not a whole lot of wiggle room in that, right? So let's go on to verse three. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So what, what's Naboth talking about here? Um, Naboth is actually being obedient to what God uh, 
had instituted back in Leviticus. Um, Naboth is actually being an example here of one who is faithful and obedient to God. Because back in Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 23 through 28, you can turn there if you want. I'll just give a quick summary of it. The idea was that God had created creation, right? It's all God's. Um, and when the Israelites came into this land, they were all given land to be good stewards of. And so we see that Naboth, his previous ancestors, was given this plot of land, this vineyard. Um, and they were responsible for it. They took care of it. And so in Leviticus 25, it talks about how as being stewards of this land, you cannot sell this land permanently. It cannot end up in someone else's name permanently. Um, it could be sold off as a means to pay a debt for a certain period of time, but it always ended up back in the line of the family that it was originally purposed for. And so we see here, Ahab is trying to take something that was in no way his. It was originally God's, and he was allowing Naboth's family to, to have it, to, to rule over it and to steward it well. And so they had a vineyard, right? Um, so we actually see... Ahab should have never even asked for this in the first place. This was not something you did in this, this culture as, as God's people. You didn't just ask for people's land expecting to receive it, especially as a king, um, because it always belonged to, to the original owner, to that original family. Um, so let's, let's see how Ahab responds in this. Let's go on to verse 4. It says, So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. He lay on his bed sulking, refused to eat. So we see Naboth, he, he goes away pretty much like a spoiled child, right? He uh, doesn't even put up a fight. He just goes home and cries about it and refuses to eat dinner. Um, so going on in verses five and six, we see his wife Jezebel comes on the scene, right? Verse 5, it says, His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. I will not give you my vineyard. So what we're seeing here is Ahab's recounting the story to his wife in his own mind, right? He twists the story. He doesn't mention anything about Naboth saying, you know, this is against what the Lord has said, Ahab. Uh, instead, he says, um, I will, uh, I'm just not going to give it to you. I don't want to give it to you. Um, and so we see that he's trying to make Naboth sound just as selfish as he himself is. Um, he doesn't want to put Naboth in this good light of being one who's obedient to God. He's, he's truly just being selfish and wanting to make Naboth look bad. Um, and to get his wife on his side, right? So how do we see uh, Jezebel react to this? <clears throat> Jezebel, his wife, said in verse 7, Is this how you act as a king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So now we get to see Jezebel in action. Uh, and we, we see that this, this king Ahab is really shown by his wife what she thinks kingship means. She sort of takes the reins. She's now in charge um, and is going to do whatever it takes to get what she and her husband want. So let's see what, let's see what her plan is. We'll read this in verses 8 through 10. 
says, so she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So we see what the plan is. Jezebel wants Naboth dead. And it's this five-step plan. First, they're going to declare a fast. Uh, and this was really just a way to gather people. It was an excuse to get a bunch of people together um, to bring this accusation against Naboth. And then the second part of the plan was to put Naboth in a prominent place where everyone could see him and know who is being called out. And then the third part of this plan was to put two scoundrels next or in the same seating with Naboth. Um, and these scoundrels, the words that's actually used here is the sons of Belial or the sons of destruction and wickedness. So the people that were planned to be put here, they were no good. They were just as bad, if not worse, than Jezebel and Ahab, right? And they are the ones that are being called to, to help carry out this plan. So that's step three. Step four is these men will bring a charge against Naboth. And in doing so, what Jezebel is accomplishing here is actually sort of tricky. What she's doing is she's having more than one witness testify against Naboth with these accusations of cursing God and king. And in doing so, she's actually following the law, at least in terms of what it says, in that there has to be more than one witness for accusing someone to have them punished with death. Um, and so she's twisting this law that's found in uh, Numbers 35 to, to work in her plan to kill Naboth. Um, and so then these men will bring the charge against Naboth. And then step five was the execution of all this. And that was to stone him to death because of the accusation of cursing God and king. And this is once again, twisting the law, using this, pu this punishment of cursing God and king uh, to, to be stoned. They're using that all together in this wicked and vile plan to get Naboth out of the picture so that they can take his land. So let's go on in verses 11 through 14, and we'll see where, or just how this all plays out. So it starts off in verse 11. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. So what's so sad about this part in the story is that the city of Jezreel, their own elders and nobles who lived with Naboth, we see this language here in verse 11. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city, these are his fellow people. These people know him, they grew up with him. They're the ones who take Jezebel's letter and are good to go with it. There's no fighting against it. There's no doubting it. They just go with the plan. And we see just more of this wickedness of who these people are and following along with killing an innocent man. So ultimately, we see Naboth is killed. And these people are no good. And 
Going on in verses 15 and 16, it says, As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. So Ahab gets what he wants in the most wicked and selfish of ways that we see. He, his own wife does it, all the dirty work. Well, not even she does the dirty work. Jezebel gets people to do their dirty work. So their hands are not on it, and yet it's all because of their own wicked and selfish desires that this innocent man is killed so that they can take his land for a vegetable garden. A vegetable garden. That's what led to all of this. It's just disgusting. Like this is the heart of man. It's so selfish, so prideful. And we think we can do whatever we want and we deserve whatever we want. And this is what it turns out being, killing innocent people. So let's hear from the perspective of the word of the Lord coming to Elijah. Because God has something to say about this. Going on in verses 17 through 19, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, This is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, This is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, Dogs will lip up, lick up your blood. Yes, yours. So we see two simple messages from God through the prophet Elijah. The first is a question that exposes Ahab's guilt. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? And the second message is the consequences. You are deserving of death. Your blood will be licked up by the same dogs who licked up Naboth's blood. You're going to die, Ahab. So, this is, this is messed up. Um, and it's just, honestly, re-emphasizing what Ahab had already heard at the end of the previous chapter, in which your life, Ahab, is now going to be in place of the life of the king that you made a treaty with. You're supposed to take him out. You're supposed to get rid of him. And now your life is for his life. And so we see this being reiterated again in this passage, right? Your blood will be spilled. So going on in verses 20 through 24, we see Elijah come to Ahab and him deliver this message. It says, Ahab said to Elijah, So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. That was pretty brutal. That was pretty
pretty brutal. Elijah is showing Ahab, this is what's coming because of what you've done. And he's throwing Ahab in with these previous terrible kings of Israel, of Jeroboam and of Baasha. Ahab's house, Ahab's house is going to come to an end just like theirs. God is going to make sure there are no descendants to carry on this terrible lineage. Um, and it's going to be taken care of quite brutally, as we see in the message from the Lord. So going on in verses 25 to 26, it says sort of in like a parenthetical note, There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. The author is almost like reassuring the audience, the readers, that this punishment fits the crime. <laughs> there was never a man like Ahab who had sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by his wife Jezebel. So Jezebel's lumped in there as well, right? He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols, like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. What he's saying here is Ahab is just as bad as the wicked nations that God had previously driven out, that God had used the nation of Israel coming into this land to drive out. He's on the same page as these foreign nations. And this man is the king of Israel, of God's people. So, going on in verses 27 through 29, we see what this effect has on Ahab. And it says, When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. The word of the Lord wrecked Ahab so much so that he ends up putting on sackcloth and going around meekly and fasting. And it's astounding to see Ahab respond in this way because he's never really gone to this point before. He has in other circumstances, but Ahab's response actually makes God's response mercy. Ahab's response to the Lord's Lord, or sorry, the Lord's word was pretty astounding. But what's even more astounding is God's response to Ahab's response. He shows him mercy. One of the most wicked kings is shown mercy. And it just said in the previous verse how bad he was. There was never a man like Ahab. He was behaving in the vilest of manners. He was like the Amorites that they had already driven out. But God shows him mercy. What we see in this passage and what led me to the, bringing up this text today comes back for, to the song of his mercy is more. That God is eager to show mercy. God is eager to show mercy. Even to the worst of people. Even King Ahab. I want to read the first verse in the course of the song. It says, What love could remember no wrongs we have done, omniscient all-knowing, he counts not their sum, thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. 
Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And so, as I've been hearing this song week after week, not week after week, but consistently in worship and then coming upon this passage, it was just overwhelming to see God's mercy, even for King Ahab, even for this terrible man. And it just shows who God is. I want to read, if you want to flip to me, with, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we see um, a description of, of who God is in his mercy. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Wanting everyone to come to repentance. A, uh, a great verse that pops up consistently in the Old Testament describing who God is. Uh, in Psalm 86, 15, It says, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. You, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God is merciful, abounding in steadfast love. so much so that he shows mercy to Ahab. Now, Ahab's punishment was not revoked, just to be clear. It was just postponed. It was, he says, you know, his sons will end up bearing this burden, right? And what we see with Ahab is there is, there is sort of this period of mourning over the Lord's word that was given to him, but we don't see any repentance or asking for forgiveness. And ultimately, his eventual demise for him and his descendants is what is told to him. They're, he's gonna die and his whole household is gonna be wiped out because of what he's done. But imagine if Ahab had repented. Imagine if Ahab had begged for forgiveness because our God, he is rich in mercy and steadfast in his faithful love. As the song says, our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. One great example of this actually working out well is King David. Um, if you want to flip to Second uh, Samuel chapter 11 with me, we'll go through this real quick. Um, but it's just a picture very similar to what Ahab's circumstances were. But it ends up playing out well because of David's repentance and brokenness over what he had done. So in Second Samuel chapter 11, it's the account of David with Bathsheba, right? The, uh, David takes a woman who is not his wife uh, and sleeps with her, and she was married to another man, um, and she ends up getting pregnant, and it all falls apart. Um, so I'll just give you a quick gist through it. It says in verse 4 of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel, Then David sent messengers to get her, to get Bathsheba, because he had seen her bathing on the rooftop, and he was you know, filled with lust, filled with desire. He wanted to sleep with her. And so she came to him and he slept with her. And that's where it all started. And then going into verse five, it says, the woman uh, conceived and she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So not only does David sleep with this woman who's not his wife and is the wife of another man, one of David's best soldiers, 
she is now pregnant. So there's no way of David getting out of this situation, right? So David tries to sort of work with Uriah, trying to give him some gifts and stuff like that. And Uriah just shows himself to be a humble, genuine man wanting to be um, serving the king and fighting alongside his fellow soldiers. Um, so eventually David sends this message to the commander of the army in verse 15. It says, in it he wrote, put Uriah, Uriah being Bathsheba's husband, in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And I just want to pause right here, thinking back to Ahab with this silly vineyard. Compare David's story with a woman that was not his own. He sees something, he wants it, he takes it, and now they're coming up with this wicked plan where their hands are off of the situation. They're not the ones doing the dirty work, um, but they need someone dead. And so we see in verse 27 of chapter 11, after the time, or sorry, in verse 15, with that, and then withdraw from him, he'll be struck down and die. Uh, Joab, the commander of the army, follows through with this. Uriah dies, fighting on the front lines. Um, and in verse 27, it sort of gives the summary of uh, Bathsheba mourning over her husband and what God thinks about this situation. It says, after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So we see <laughs> what David did was not good. God is not happy with what he had done. So Nathan the prophet comes to David and gives him this story and David responds to the story, which is talking about David and says, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. And it's like, well, David, that's you. And Nathan says in verses seven through 10, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been so little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. God lays it out to David. You did something terrible and there's gonna be consequences. So skip forward to verse 13 and we see David's response to Nathan and this word that he's received. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. And we actually get to see more of David's heart behind all this in Psalm 51, which is in response to him hearing these words from Nathan. In Psalm 51, I just want to read through it real quick because it nails it on the head. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Thinking of David in this place of committing sin against God. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Going back to the account in 2 Samuel 12, it says, Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. So God sees David's repentant heart. He sees that he's seeking forgiveness. He knows the sins he's committed and he is begging God, forgive me, wash me whiter than snow. Um, and we see God grants that. The Lord has taken away your sin. But we also see in verse 14, there's still consequences. Because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. The son born to you will die. So ultimately, what David did led to death of his own son with Bathsheba. Granted, they have another son, Solomon, who ends up being the king. But losing a kid is no joke, especially because if it was the result of your own doing. And we see David repenting over this and and. If you go on in chapter 12, he, he's praying for his kid not to die and that the Lord would remove this from him and his son does die. All because of what he had started to do with Bathsheba in the beginning. Because he let his own desires take over. He let sin reign in his heart for a bit. And it led to all this terribleness. But... God is eager to show mercy. God has taken away David's sin. And we see that God is merciful. He is abounding in steadfast love. That he desires a broken heart and a contrite spirit. And in those things, we have mercy and we have forgiveness. So I hope that in the midst of all the pretty terrible stuff I shared. You got to see God's mercy in all of it. Um, even in the midst of murder and adultery and just wickedness, God's mercy is more. I just want to finish um, this time going through the whole lyrics of the song. I meant to read some of the lyrics in the beginning when I started. That's why I, I slipped in verse one in the chorus um, earlier. But now I'm going to read through all of it because it's just so rich. And I encourage you as the song comes up again in worship to just really chew on the lyrics and who they say God is and who we are. And just the mercy that he shows us in light of all that. So here's the lyrics to the song. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. 
Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So we see regardless of the wickedness of man, ignore my tears, God is eager to show mercy. Whether it's the wicked king Ahab, even just for a bit, God shows him mercy. Or it's King David. Or if it's us today, God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. He is eager to show mercy. So I encourage you, reflect on God's mercy and how in need of it we are daily. Ooh, I want to read one last verse. Uh, it's Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23. It says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this day that we have to reflect on the mercy that you love to show. Father, in spite of our sin and how much there is, your mercy is more. Father, I pray that we never lose sight of how great you are, of how steadfast your love is. Regardless of our sins, you are always desiring for us to repent. Lord, I pray for us here and now, if there are things, sins that we are, have not let go, if there are things we need to confess, Lord, I pray that we bring them to you and that your mercy can just renew our hearts, that you can wash us whiter than snow. Lord, may we have broken and contrite hearts before you, knowing that you desire to show us mercy. Father, I pray that we can share this good news with all that we encounter, with friends, with family, with coworkers. I just pray, Lord, that we can make known who you are in the world that doesn't know you. We pray in your name. Amen.